Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning and welcome to the Manulife Financial First Quarter 2020 Financial Results Conference Call. Your host for today will be Ms. Adrian O'Neill. Please go ahead, Ms. O'Neill. Thank you and good morning. Welcome to Manulife's Earnings Conference Call to discuss our first quarter 2020 results. For the first time in our company's history, we are conducting this call virtually. Our earnings release financial statements and related MDNA, embedded value report, statistical information package, and webcast slides for today's call are available on the Investor Relations section of our website at manulive.com. We will begin today's presentation with an overview of our first quarter and an update on our strategic priorities by Roy Gorey, our President and Chief Executive Officer. Following Roy's remarks, Phil Witherington, our Chief Financial Officer, will discuss the company's financial and operating results. We will end today's presentation with Scott Hartz, our Chief Investment Officer, who will discuss the company's general account invested asset portfolio and the effectiveness of our hedging programs. Following the prepared remarks, which were recorded earlier this week to ensure optimal sound quality, we will move to the live question and answer portion of the call. We ask each participant to adhere to a limit of two questions. If you have additional questions, please requeue and we will do our best to respond to all questions. Before we start, please refer to slide two for a caution on forward-looking statements and slide 44 for a note on the use of non-GAAP financial measures in this presentation. Note that certain material factors or assumptions are applied in making forward-looking statements, and actual results may differ materially from what is stated. The slide also indicates where to find more information on these topics and the factors that could cause actual results to differ materially from those stated. With that, I'd like to turn the call over to Roy Gorey, our President and Chief Executive Officer. Roy. Thank you, Adrian. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. Turning to slide five, I'd like to start by acknowledging the significance of the situation that we find ourselves in as a global community. We offer our deepest sympathies to those who have been directly impacted by COVID-19 and our immense gratitude to frontline healthcare and other essential workers for their crucial contributions. I believe that it's at times like these that we have a responsibility to step up and protect the health and welfare of our employees, customers, and communities. And that's exactly what we're doing at Manulife. The health and safety of our employees is a top priority, as is our focus and commitment to supporting our customers around the world. We're very proud that enacting our business continuity plans enabled 95% of our global employees to work from home during the pandemic. As of today, Approximately 90% of our employees are working from home, as many of our colleagues have returned to the office in China and Hong Kong. 
We have ensured salary continuance and offered flexible arrangement to employees who encountered COVID-19 related challenges with remote work. This is a challenging time for many people and we're focused on ensuring that our customers are receiving the highest level of service and support possible. We remain open in every market that we have a presence and continue to offer all products and services. In order to make things easier and safer for customers, as well as for our employees, advisors and agents, we responded to the crisis by leveraging technology to rapidly deploy various client solutions. In some instances, these were new tools that we already had in the pipeline. And in other cases, we moved fast to deploy existing technology to new markets. I will share some examples later in my presentation. In addition, we've dedicated over $20 million to financial relief for customers who are experiencing hardship. These include extended premium grace periods on a number of insurance products across our segments, mortgage payment deferrals through Manulife Bank, and waiving the fee for 401k hardship withdrawals in our global wealth and asset management business. And we are donating funds to causes supporting healthcare workers and hospitals providing COVID-19 care, and to aid programs that provide food security to vulnerable populations in our communities. Before we move on, I'd like to acknowledge how incredibly proud I am of the Manulife team. There are countless examples of how our team members have risen to the challenge and gone above and beyond to be there for our customers when they needed us most. Many of them are on the call today, and thank you to each of you. Then it's slide six. We're very pleased with how smoothly our employees across all levels and functions were able to transition to working from home. This was possible because we've made key strategic investments in our network, equipment, and tools over the last few years, and because we already had a mature work-from-home culture. For example, 99% of our North American employees have been working remotely since mid-March, resulting in VPN usage increasing to 2.5 times regular levels. And yet, during peak periods, our average network utilization is less than 55% of our total capacity. We are keeping team members up to date by hosting enterprise-wide town halls, posting regular video updates from senior executives, and launching a speaker series to tackle various topics of interest, including mental health. Finally, our online learning tools are well-developed, and as a result, participation in training programs has continued at pre-crisis levels. In addition, we leverage this expertise to pivot to online learning for our agents and advisors around the globe. Turning to slide seven. As I said earlier, we responded to the crisis by rapidly deploying new and existing technology. This included launching chatbot technology to manage call sender volumes, DocuSign to enable contactless transactions and reinforcing our existing digital tools such as e-applications for life insurance in Canada and the US. And we've enabled non-face-to-face -face processes for sales in all markets in Asia. Prior to the crisis, we'd been using this technology in China and thanks to that experience, our capabilities were well-developed. When the crisis hit and isolation measures were put in place around the world, 
we accelerated our plans to roll out this technology more broadly in the region. This enables our distribution partners and agents to engage with our customers according to their preferences. It also positions us well to capitalise on any changes in customer sentiment post-COVID-19 and supports productivity and retention of our agency force. The ultimate test as to whether these measures are working well is the NPS score. And we're happy to report that we've actually experienced a slight improvement in our transactional NPS score since the onset of COVID-19, which we see as a big win given elevated call volumes and the pivot to working remotely. Heading to slide eight, Manulife entered the quarter in a position of strength thanks to the work we've done over the past decade to de-risk our business and reduce our company's sensitivity to market movements. In the first quarter of 2020, our LICAT ratio improved to 155% and our leverage ratio of 23% was considerably lower than it was two years ago and is now below our medium-term target. This combination results in more financial flexibility than we've had in recent years. We have a high-quality invested asset portfolio with 98% of fixed income assets rated as investment grade. Scott will delve into our general account portfolio and the effectiveness of our hedging programs in his presentation. We've diligently worked towards becoming a digital customer leader and, as you heard before, this is serving us well in the current environment. Finally, expense efficiency has been one of our highest priorities and we've made meaningful progress towards our 2022 target with the delivery of total expense savings of $700 million. And our strong culture of expense discipline is serving us well in this environment. As a result of these strengths, I'm confident that Manulife is well positioned to navigate this crisis and the associated economic downturn. Turning to slide nine, yesterday we announced our first quarter financial results. As I noted, the coronavirus continues to disrupt economies and capital markets worldwide. Our operating conditions during the first quarter were understandably affected. Despite these challenging conditions, we delivered solid results, demonstrating the diversity and resilience of our businesses. We delivered net income attributed to shareholders of $1.3 billion and core earnings of $1 billion. The relatively small variance between these two figures amidst challenging macroeconomic conditions is a testament to the performance of our equity market and interest rate hedging programs. Core ROE was resilient at 8.2% and we achieved net inflows of $3.2 billion in global WAM with all business lines contributing positive net flows. Book value per share rose to $26.53, and we also reported embedded value of $58.1 billion, or $29.79 per share, as of December 31, 2019. It's worth noting that embedded value only reflects a portion of the value of our businesses, as it attributes no value to future new business, and only tangible book value to our growing wealth and asset management businesses as well as our PNC reinsurance operations and Manulife Bank. Turning to slide 10, despite the challenging environment, I believe that we've accomplished a great deal in the first quarter. 
we successfully completed our 2022 portfolio optimization target of $5 billion of capital in the fourth quarter of 2019, three years ahead of schedule. While we've achieved our target, we have generated an additional $265 million of capital benefit in the first quarter of 2020 through a variety of initiatives. The initiatives announced to date have resulted in cumulative capital benefit of $5.3 billion. We remain focused on aggressively managing costs to drive expense efficiency, which resulted in modest core expense growth of 2% in the first quarter of 2020, which is well below our historic average. Our third priority is to accelerate growth in our highest potential businesses, and we aspire to have these businesses generate two-thirds of total company core earnings by 2022. In Asia, we extended our exclusive strategic bank assurance arrangement with Bank Dynamon Indonesia to 2036. And in Global WAM, we launched a large case US retirement plan worth $2.6 billion with over 100,000 participants. Our fourth priority is our customers and how we're using technology to attract, engage and retain customers by delivering an outstanding experience. As I previously mentioned, during the first quarter of 2020, we've leveraged our digital platforms to better serve our customers during the COVID-19 pandemic. Our final priority is high-performing team. Our target is to achieve top quartile employee engagement compared to global financial services and insurance peers by 2022. In February, I was delighted to announce the appointment of Karen Leggett as Chief Marketing Officer. And in March, we were named one of Canada's best diversity employers for the third year in a row by MediaCorp. Moving to slide 11. In conclusion, we have a fantastic diverse franchise and a winning team. We are in a position of strength and will remain focused on maintaining financial flexibility and operational resiliency. The long-term fundamentals and demographics underpinning our strategy remain unchanged. Times such as these reinforce the importance of insurance, wealth management, and retirement products, which we believe will drive higher demand for our products in the future, and even stronger customer preferences to interact with companies who have digital capabilities and streamlined processes. We are in an unprecedented macroeconomic environment, and there are many possible scenarios on the length and nature of the impeding recovery. The path of the recovery remains to be seen, but I'm confident that we are in a position of strength. We remain committed to our dividend along with our medium-term financial targets. Thank you. And I'll hand over to Phil Witherington, who will review the highlights of our financial results. Phil. Thank you, Roy, and good morning, everyone. Turning to slide 13 and our financial performance for the first quarter of 2020, as Roy mentioned, considering the challenging conditions, we delivered solid results. I will highlight the key drivers of our first quarter performance with reference to the next few slides. Turning to slide 14, core earnings in the first quarter of 2020 were $1 billion, down 34% from the prior year quarter on a constant exchange rate basis. The decrease in core earnings was driven by the unfavorable impact of markets on seed money investments, the absence of core investment gains, 
lower new business volumes in Japan compared with a very strong quarter for Japan Kohli in the prior year, and unfavorable policyholder experience in North America, including elevated travel insurance claims related to COVID-19. These items were partially offset by the impact of enforced growth in Asia and higher fee income from higher average asset levels in our global wealth and asset management businesses. We are pleased with the resilient performance of our businesses during these challenging times and believe that Manulife is well positioned to continue to succeed through this period of uncertainty and the subsequent recovery. We delivered net income attributed to shareholders of $1.3 billion in the first quarter. Of note, we recognized losses of $608 million from investment-related experience, driven by lower-than-expected returns on older, primarily due to the impact of sharp declines in oil prices. The favorable impact of fixed-income reinvestment activities as we took advantage of wider corporate spreads served as a partial offset. The gain of $2.1 billion from the direct impact of interest rates was primarily driven by wider corporate spreads and realized gains on the sale of AFS bonds, partially offset by the impact of lower risk-free rates. The charge of $1.3 billion from the direct impact of equity markets reflects significant declines in global equities during a volatile quarter. We also reported a $72 million gain related to a tax benefit from the U.S. CARES Act as a result of carrying back net operating losses to prior years. Slide 15 shows our source of earnings analysis. Expected profit on Inforce increased a modest 3% on a constant exchange rate basis, driven by growth in Asia. New business gains were lower than the prior year quarter due to lower sales volumes in Japan. As a reminder, the first quarter of 2019 was an exceptional quarter for Japan Kohli sales. Overall policyholder experience in the first quarter was unfavorable, primarily due to higher travel claims in Canada related to COVID-19 travel interruption and cancellation and higher claims in our U.S. life insurance business. LPC policyholder experience was neutral in the first quarter of 2020. Turning to slide 16, we delivered core earnings growth of 6% in our global wealth and asset management business, driven by higher average asset levels. Core earnings in Asia decreased by 7%, driven by lower new business volumes in Japan. You may recall that in the first quarter of 2019, we experienced a significant increase in Kohli sales in Japan, as customers anticipated the introduction of unfavorable tax changes. In contrast, our businesses in Hong Kong and Asia Other both delivered double-digit core earnings growth, which served as a partial offset. In the U.S., core earnings decreased by 13%, driven by unfavorable life insurance policyholder experience. Core earnings in our Canadian business decreased by 16%, primarily due to unfavorable travel claims experience related to COVID-19. 
We delivered core ROE of 8.2% in the first quarter of 2020 against a backdrop of challenging market conditions. Slide 17 shows our new business value generation and APE sales. In the first quarter of 2020, we delivered new business value of $469 million, down 11% from the prior year quarter. In Asia, new business value decreased by 14% compared with the first quarter of 2019, as growth in Hong Kong and Asia Other was more than offset by a decline in Japan. In Canada, new business value increased by 24% from the prior year quarter, driven by higher sales across all business lines. And in the U.S., new business value decreased 23%, primarily due to the impact of lower sales volumes and less favorable business mix. In the first quarter of 2020, we delivered APE sales of $1.6 billion, down 9% from the prior year quarter. The decline in APE sales growth is driven by the impact of tax changes on Kohli product sales in Japan, which offset growth in Hong Kong and Asia other. In Canada, APE growth of 44% compared with the first quarter of 2019 was driven by large case group insurance sales and continued growth of our individual insurance business. In the U.S., APE sales were largely in line with the prior year quarter as lower domestic universal life sales following regulatory changes in the fourth quarter of 2019 more than offset higher term and international sales. Turning to slide 18, our global wealth and asset management business generated net inflows of $3.2 billion in the first quarter compared with net outflows of $1.3 billion in the prior year quarter, with positive contributions from all business lines, despite higher retail redemptions in the U.S. and Canada amid equity market declines in March. In the U.S., net outflows of $0.2 billion in the first quarter of 2020 improved compared to $4 billion of net outflows in the first quarter of 2019. This improvement was driven by higher retail gross flows, primarily from strong institutional model allocations and intermediary sales, as well as the sale of a large case retirement plan. In Canada, net inflows of $2.8 billion improved compared to net inflows of $2.1 billion in the first quarter of 2019. The improvement was driven by higher gross flows into institutional asset management equity mandates. In Asia, net inflows of $0.6 billion were in line with the prior year quarter as higher net inflows in retirement were offset by higher, mainly institutional, redemptions. Our core EBITDA margin remains solid at 27.3% in line with the prior quarter and up 30 basis points from the prior year quarter. Our average AUM remains stable compared with the prior year quarter as the unfavorable impact of markets was offset by net inflows. Turning to slide 19, we have entered this downturn with a strong balance sheet and regulatory capital position. 
Our financial position has strengthened further in the first quarter of 2020. We have $31 billion of capital above the supervisory target, and our LICAT ratio improved to 155%. The 15 percentage point increase compared to the prior quarter was driven by the positive impact of widening corporate spreads and lower risk-free rates, partially offset by the impact of lower public equity and older valuations. Our leverage ratio declined to 23%, two percentage points below our medium-term target of 25%. The decrease in the leverage ratio was driven by the impact of lower interest rates, which increased the value of AFS debt securities, The $500 million subordinated debt redemption that occurred in January 2020, the favorable impact of a weaker Canadian dollar, and growth in retained earnings. These factors were partially offset by share buybacks. Given the high levels of market volatility and overall uncertainty, we believe it is prudent to have strong levels of capital and liquidity and to adopt a longer time horizon than in normal conditions to address future financing needs. Our relatively low leverage ratio allows for this cautious approach to pre-financing. Turning to slide 20, we continue to maintain strong liquidity at both consolidated and legal entity levels, and we are confident in our ability to meet all our payments and obligations. Approximately one quarter of the assets in our general account portfolio are liquid government bonds and cash. I would also like to reiterate our capital allocation priorities, which remain unchanged. Organic investments in our highest priority businesses remain our top priority, followed by sustainable dividend increases opportunistic share buybacks, and then M&A. It's worth noting that it is not unreasonable to expect that subsidiary remittances would be lower in this interest rate environment. However, we do not expect this to be a constraint to our capital priorities. As an example of our appetite to deploy capital, within the last few weeks, we have extended our exclusive bank assurance agreement with Bank Danamon Indonesia until 2036. Slide 21 outlines our medium-term financial operating targets and our recent performance. Core EPS growth, core ROE and expense efficiency were below our targets, primarily driven by the challenging macroeconomic environment in the first quarter of 2020. And, like most other companies, we expect the second quarter of 2020 to be a challenging one, given the isolation measures that have been in place around the world. In light of the current environment, we would not expect to achieve our medium-term core EPS growth target of 10 to 12% this year. We are in a strong position, and we remain committed to our dividend, along with our medium-term financial targets. I would now like to turn the call over to Scott Hartz, who will discuss our general account investment portfolio. Scott. Thank you, Phil, and good morning, everyone. I'm pleased to provide you with a more in-depth update on the direct impact of equity markets and interest rates on our results and on our investment-related experience. 
I will also provide some additional color on the strength of our investment portfolio. Please turn to slide 23. As you might recall, our dynamic program hedges variable annuity risk on a best estimate economic basis. And our macro program hedges the remaining equity market risks not covered by the dynamic program. Our VA hedging program was severely tested this quarter given the significant volatility we saw in both interest rates and equities. The pro program performed quite well, offsetting 93% of the increase in the liability. The slippage was roughly half due to the trading needed to rebalance the hedge and half due to the underlying funds underperforming our hedging benchmarks. This fund underperformance typically reverses when markets normalize. Our interest rate hedging program uses a combination of long bonds in the cash market, forward starting interest rate swaps, treasury forwards, and treasury futures. We do also use interest rate floors to hedge minimum interest rate guarantees in our liabilities. Our sensitivities to interest rates and equity markets have been significantly reduced since the 2008 global financial crisis. Starting from 2013, when we achieved our hedging targets, you can see the impact from interest rates and equity markets have largely offset each other and over time have had an immaterial impact on net income. During the first quarter of 2020, we saw the U.S. 30-year risk-free rate drop over 100 basis points, the S&P 500 dropped 20%, the VIX increased to 80%, and corporate spreads widened by roughly 150 basis points. In these volatile market conditions, we recognized a $792 million gain as losses related to the direct impact of equity markets and falling risk-free rates were more than offset by widening corporate spreads. So, while we are certainly in a period of extreme market stress, our hedging programs have been effective at mitigating net income variability, and we remain within our equity and interest rate risk limits. Next, slide 24 shows a recent history of our investment-related experience. As a reminder, investment-related experience is derived from three sources. One, fixed income reinvestment, which compares our purchase and sale activity to our reserve assumptions. Two, credit experience, which compares the impact of downgrades and defaults to that assumed in our reserves. And three, all in other, which compares how the total return on our ALDA investments performed relative to our reserve assumptions. As a reminder, ALDA, short for alternative long-duration assets, is our term for private non-fixed income assets comprised largely of real assets. Over the past three years, investment-related experience has been significantly in excess of the $400 million we can include in our core earnings. Gains from fixed income reinvestment have been strong and steady over this period and were a significant contributor this quarter as we took advantage of the very widespread environment to redeploy government bonds into high-quality spread product. Credit results have also been a reliable contributor up to the current quarter. In recessionary periods, we do expect credit results to be worse than our through-the-cycle reserve assumptions. ALDA was a significant drag this quarter, particularly due to the markdown of our oil and gas portfolio given the significant decline in energy prices. We do expect variability in our ALDA portfolio quarter to quarter due to its mark-to-market nature. 
but we also expect significant recoveries when market conditions improve. Through the cycle, our ALDA portfolio has largely performed as expected. Now turning to slide 25. Our invested assets are diverse and of high quality. Over 98% of our fixed income assets are investment grade. We hold a diverse mix with a focus on defensive asset classes. I will expand on this later in my presentation. We've relied on our ALDA portfolio to generate enhanced yield. This has removed a need for us to chase yield through riskier fixed income assets. For example, our exposure to below investment grade is limited to only 2% of our portfolio and we do not have any exposure to collateralized loan obligations. Finally, a key component of our risk management framework is our credit team. As a company, we take credit risk very seriously and manage it within a highly experienced team which has been through many credit cycles. Our approach to credit risk has served us well in downturns, including the 2008 global financial crisis. Turning to slide 26, you'll see it illustrates how strong our long-term credit performance has been. Our portfolio losses have consistently stayed below benchmark levels since the financial crisis. Based on our portfolio, as at March 31, 2020, the long-term expected level based on Moody's default studies applied to our aggregate credit exposure is approximately $108 million pre-tax per quarter. Further, relative to our internal credit loss assumptions, we have generated positive credit experience each calendar year since 2010. The chart on the slide represents actual impairments, while the accounting credit results also include increased credit reserves for downgrades. These reserves will ultimately be released into income, so this chart reflects the ultimate impact of credit on our income. While we have certainly been pleased with this performance, we would remind everyone that credit is inherently cyclical. We will expect some adverse impacts in the current market environment, but that is the nature of the cycle, and therefore credit losses are likely to be elevated throughout the recession. At the same time, we are taking advantage of the market conditions and investing in very high-quality issuers at spreads not seen since the GFC. This should provide an offset to our temporarily unfavorable credit experience. Now, turning to slide 27, we show our investment-grade fixed income rating distribution relative to a U.S. industry benchmark. As I mentioned earlier, 98% of our fixed income portfolios investment-grade with 75% rated A and above. Relative to the industry benchmark, as represented by Barclays U.S. Corporate Index, our portfolio has a significantly higher weight in bonds rated A and above. While the triple B component of the corporate bond universe has increased in recent years, ours has been stable and is well below the market weight. In addition, within our triple B portfolio, only 17% is rated triple B minus, which is the weakest category. Our below investment grade holdings, which I previously mentioned are only 2% of our fixed income portfolio, are well diversified by industry sectors and proportionally lower than our holdings at the time of the global financial crisis. Turning to page 28, we show our fixed income portfolio by sector. Our portfolio is quite diverse and built to endure significant economic stress. The portfolio is weighted most heavily in government and utility sectors both of which are more defensive in nature. Our energy holdings, which constitute 8% of our portfolio, are currently under higher pressure given the significant demand destruction we are witnessing 
and I will cover the details of that portfolio in a few slides. I'd also point out that we have a modest 3% weight in the more exposed consumer cyclical sector. On to slide 29, which shows the composition of our ALDA portfolio. We continue to believe ALDA represents an integral and complementary component of our investment mix backing long-term liabilities. In combination with fixed income assets, which back the first 20 to 30 years of liability cash flows, we believe alternative assets have the potential to increase expected returns while managing the level of risk. We have strong in-house capabilities and experienced investment professionals in each of our alternative asset classes. As you may recall, we recently sold over $5 billion of ALDA supporting our North American legacy businesses, which allowed us to release over $2.2 billion of capital. This helped us reduce our exposure in guaranteed segments. Currently, more than one-third of our ALDA supports participating and pass-through businesses. We assess our actuarial assumptions every year, but have no reason to believe our ALDA return assumptions are unreasonable over the long-term holding period. Slide 30 summarizes our fixed income energy exposure, which is topical considering current depressed oil prices. Here you can see the subsector diversification. More than one-third of our portfolio is in midstream, such as pipelines, which largely transport natural gas and liquids and are less susceptible to changes in commodity prices. This portfolio is high quality with 94% rated investment grade. Given our limited exposure to high-yield issuers, we do not expect widespread defaults, although given the significant pressure on oil prices, we would expect downgrades. Slide 31 summarizes our energy exposure through ALDA. As noted earlier, our ALDA oil and gas portfolio generated experience loss this quarter. Our private equity oil and gas holdings are in the U.S. and are valued based on the forward strip. When prices fall, we might typically see a delay in the loss recognition as we are dependent on evaluations from our fund managers. In this case, given the drastic price swing, we did not wait for our fund valuations and estimated some of the loss that would normally have been recognized in Q2. Our conventional Canadian oil and gas properties are managed by our subsidiary, NAL Resources. These assets are valued by an independent appraiser whose forward price stack typically moves less than the forward market curve, but this quarter it moved more than the market, which exacerbated the loss. While the loss was material this quarter, it was largely a mark-to-market fair value adjustment. The ultimate loss will depend on realized prices well into the future. And while in the short term, prices will likely stay depressed, we would expect a significant recovery when demand is restored as shutdown production will be difficult to restart. Both our Canadian and U.S. holdings are largely unlevered, so they should be able to manage the short-term stress the industry is experiencing. Moving on to slide 32. In summary, I want to reiterate that our invested assets portfolio is high quality and diverse. It is designed to endure significant economic stress. We have a very strong history of favorable credit experience, which is a testament to our credit teams and underwriting processes. While oil and gas prices are stressed, we continue to believe these are high-quality assets and that our holdings will rebound in the medium term when markets improve. Finally, risk premiums have increased significantly, and we have taken advantage of these as we continue to be cash flow positive in this environment 
and are putting that to work in attractive investments. This concludes our prepared remarks. Operator, we will now open the call to questions. Thank you. We will now take questions from the telephone lines. If you have a question and you are using a speakerphone, please lift your handset before making your selection. If you have a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. At any time you wish to cancel your question, please press the pound sign. So please press star 1 at this time. There will be a brief pause while the participants register. We thank you for your patience. Thank you. The first question is from Tom McKinnon from BMO Capital. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Yeah, thanks very much. Can you hear me? We can, Tom. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I got cut off a little bit on the call, but I'm not sure if you talked at all about any kind of uh, uh, outlook in terms of sales in April. If you can take us through that by, uh, by division, that would be helpful. And then I have one follow-up. Yeah, let me tackle that, Tom. Firstly, uh, good morning and great to see you. Uh, well, at least remotely. Um, you know, obviously, you know, sales is going to be one area that impacts our business and we're expecting to see a lot of volatility as, quite frankly, you know, different geographies adjust to the impacts of, you know, uh, isolation and um, social distancing. Um, you know, I'm quite pleased actually with our first quarter results. Our new business value, as Phil highlighted in the prepared remarks, were 469 mil. And actually, when you adjust for Japan or when you look at it on an ex-Japan basis, we're up 12%. Um, April, first month of the quarter, we're basically looking at, across all geographies, a net 10% off uh, the same quarter of last year. Um, but again, I, I, again, this is obviously going to be an area of um, you know significant movement so I'd hate to draw a trend line from that to conclude on how the quarter is going to end or how we're going to look at the rest of the year so it's something we're watching very closely we're pleased with the resiliency of, the resiliency of our franchise and quite frankly how our organization has adapted given the challenging circumstances to use new technologies to interact with customers and to continue our sales momentum as we saw in Q1 uh, April results are encouraging um, but still much more work for us to do on that front. Uh, is there any, is there any uh, uh, way you can elaborate at all as to what you're seeing in uh, U.S. or Canada or in Asia with respect to that overall net 10%? Yeah, so the movement is obviously, you know, varies by, by geography and then even within Asia, it varies significantly by marketplaces. We've seen different markets come back at different paces. You know, in China, for example, we're now seeing in our own operation, 80% of our people back in the office environment. But let me let me pause and ask, uh, you know, Mike, Marianne, and, and Neil to just provide some extra color on each of those geographies. Mike, do you want to start off with Canada, then we'll go to US and, and Neil? Sure. Um, so thanks, Tom. This is Mike. And in, in Canada, as Roy said, in April, uh, we didn't see any... Um, material change in the we we came out of q1 with very strong momentum i would say that we're looking at some some places very closely 
we've obviously done a lot of work over a number of years to digitize a lot of our sales process. So we're seeing a lot more take up of some of the tools that we have. We've also been expanding that over the last six weeks. So electronic applications are up, electronic contract delivery and receipt are up, electronic signatures are all up. So none of that is really getting in the way now of us being able to um, continue to uh, process business. The place that we are seeing a um, significant slowdown is the social distancing and the effect that it's had on paramedicals being able to visit homes to collect evidence. So at the larger end of the market, we're seeing much more of a slowdown than at the smaller end of the market. I'd also just lastly comment on uh, our group benefits business. We're definitely seeing that in the certainly, we're certainly seeing continuing to see sales. We've switched to uh, virtual finalist presentations, etc. But we are seeing a slowdown in in sort of small business quotes as as those business owners are really primarily have been really primarily focused on just making sure they manage their business. So I'll stop there and maybe pass it to Marianne. So hi Tom, it's Marianne. In the U.S., very similar story to what Mike just said. You know, in terms of the uh, capabilities that we have building been building over the last couple of years getting e-applications, e-signatures, e-delivery. It's been relatively smooth because we had those tools in place, even though there historically hadn't been a lot of take-up on it. There certainly is now. Um, I, our April month was actually a pretty good month, um, and we are seeing business holding, but we are seeing a change in mix, as you might expect. Um, less of the permanent, more of the term, um, just because of what Mike was talking about in terms of uh, being able to do the paramedics exams. We can't do that. And so we have changed some of our underwriting standards as well, things like um, 80 and above we're not currently writing um, and looking at some of the substandard pretty closely just because of the fact that we can't get the paramedics done. So um, that's basically where we are in the U.S. Over to you, Anil. Thanks, Megan. Thanks uh, for the question, Tom. So in Asia, uh, it, it's different depending upon uh, each of the markets, and we've been witnessing uh, the outbreak since the third week of, of January and uh, uh, it firstly emerged in China, quickly followed by Hong Kong and as Hong Kong and China start, started to get better, uh, the outbreak then kind of spread to Japan and South uh, Asian markets which are now experiencing uh, pretty severe levels of lockdown and isolation measures. What we're witnessing in China is almost 90% of our folks are back to work and in Hong Kong, it's now north of 70%, so that's kind of positive. And I think it's only gonna get better uh, as the quarter progresses. However, the customer activity is still not uh, at normal levels and that's on account of the uh, economic uncertainty uh, that's uh, upon us. Uh, what I think is, uh, again, in line with what uh, you heard Mike and Marianne say, uh, the investments that we've made in our business are really paying off. So, for example, in Asia, we now have uh, non-face-to-face enabled in all our markets, and we're looking to constantly improve our processes, uh, and thereby really kind of enabling our distributor partners to engage uh, with our customers. Uh, God forbid if there are going to be extended period uh, of, 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 of lockdowns. And again, we've introduced that in our agency uh, force and now extending progressively to our, our bank partners. So I think uh, it's kind of a mixed bag for us. Uh, as I said, China and Hong Kong are getting better. In fact, in April, we saw uh, China and markets like Vietnam getting very close to levels of what we had experienced uh, in April of last year. 
But again, in other markets, on account of the lockdowns, uh, they are much more severely impacted. And we believe that while the measures will ease, uh, the, the lockdown measures will be with us in some form or shape as we go through the quarter. Paul, it might be valuable for you also to give a bit of a flavour for our um, progress in GWAM or what you're seeing from a GWAM perspective as well. Yeah, thanks, Roy and Thomas. Paul here. Just, I'll just add uh, to some of these sentiments uh, offered by uh, Neil, Mike, and Marianne. We're seeing similar trends as it relates to non-face-to-face -face sales opportunities, and particularly the impact on the small business owner on our on our retirement business. So that is something we're expected. And I guess the other one that's somewhat unique to us, and in Asia, amid some of the market volatility, we have seen a shift into more cash and bank deposits in Asia, which which does have an impact. But Having said that, we, we are confident in our ability to generate uh, net flows or positive net flows over the long term. And I think some encouraging signs from my perspective are that, you know, in Asia, we were able to deliver positive net flows this quarter despite, you know, COVID-19 impacting uh, Asia earlier than some of the other regions. We also entered the year with a stronger pipeline on the institutional side than we started uh, last year. So that um, set us up well for this year. And then thirdly, We've been very proactive with uh, customers and advisors in terms of engaging with them during this period of time, whether it's support, thought leadership, et cetera, and it's been very appreciated by them, and I think it sets us up well as we navigate this crisis and come out of it to uh, just really be uh, true partners for both our customers and our advisors moving forward. Yeah, thanks, and, and just as a follow-up, is there any... Uh, um uh, what are you seeing in terms of your uh, property cap retrocession covers? Are you seeing any, uh, um, have you set up any provisions? Is there any claims activity? Um, how should we be thinking about that business? So, Tom, that, this is Phil. I think that one's uh, best handled by me. Um, we're not seeing any interruption uh, as a consequence of COVID-19. Our PNC rebusiness uh, reinsures uh, our reinsurance clients who offer property damage protection arising from natural perils such as earthquakes and hurricanes. Um, and uh, while there may be business interruption claims associated with uh, property damage claims arising from those natural perils, in the case of uh, a pandemic, that's not something that would fall within the scope of our coverage. Okay, thank you. Thank you. The next question from Steve Terrio from 8 Capital. Please go ahead. Your line is now open. Thanks very much. Uh, maybe I'll go with a question going to the Alda oil and gas um, exposures. So, Scott, I think what you're saying is that we should think of the, the hit this quarter uh, as more of a mark-to-market than what we've seen in the past trying to do more of a trying to more fully reserve for the impairment that we've seen so is, is that right and is it correct that it's sort of in the seven to eight hundred million dollar range this quarter and what would it take to see more losses from here I guess how comfortable are you in uh, in the initial assessment yes yeah, Steve it's Scott uh, thanks for the question um, and, and you pegged it about right. Our, our losses were about $750 million, uh this quarter, and that was uh, a mark-to-market. Um, so some of that loss will undoubtedly stick as uh, some of our properties are currently drilling and producing oil and selling oil, and they're selling it at lower prices than we would have expected. But it is a mark-to-market based on, you know, 10-plus years of 
expected cash flow and marking it all sort of to, to current current market levels. Um, and we we did, as you pointed out, and I pointed out in my prepared remarks, try to fairly fully take that through. On our NAL subsidiary, we have an, an, an outside appraiser, and, th and that is the way it works. Um, it's, you know, taken mark to market in the current quarter. For our, our bigger U.S. private equity portfolio, we are reliant on uh, the private equity firms who, who manage a lot of those assets to give us marks, and typically we don't get those in time, and things tend to be lagged a quarter and sometimes even two. But given the precipitous drop in prices, we tried to estimate best based on prior experience, the last time we had a major drop in prices, we tried to estimate where those marks would come out and, and put through an estimate. doesn't mean there won't be future losses as we get those marks in. And I, th I would say the last time we did see, you know, losses continue to dribble in a bit after the first big initial markdown. But, um, you know, we, we have accelerated those and we feel like we've gotten a lot of it behind us. I guess from here, um, on the way back or if things deteriorate further, do you stick with that mark-to-market approach or was it sort of a mark-to-market approach on a one-time basis and then it's more of a, a bit more of a smoothed progression from here? Well, it, it really is marked to market. It's just a question yeah. of when do we get the mark. And so, for again, for NAL, we get the mark at, at quarter end, a real-time mark. It's just we're delayed on the private equity portfolio. And, and that, you know, so for small movements, we're not going to try to estimate what that is. But when we see a big movement like that, we do try to estimate it. And, and I would again, end with, you know, some of this undoubtedly will be real losses given the, uh, you know, the, the cash flows in the short term, but we would expect, you know, prices to recover. We're, we're going to see shut-ins to production, which we really did not see the last time we had prices go down and it becomes hard to restart. We'll need to see much higher prices to try to restart. And there's, and in a lot of cases, um, restarts are difficult to do and don't produce the same level. So, you know, if, if prices get up, prices need to get north of $50 to encourage, you know, a significant uh, shale uh, drilling or uh, taking off the shut-ins. And at those kind of price levels, we would expect significant recovery in our portfolio. Okay. And then maybe I'll ask a related question uh, on the fixed income energy exposure. Scott, can you give a bit more detail on, say, the E&P and the oil field services exposure? Uh, what kind of risk uh, do you think there is there? And can you give us a little more color? Sure. Happy to do that. And, and page 30 of the slide deck does show that breakdown. And you have highlighted, I would say, the, the two... Um, two sectors of most concern for us. We, we also have midstream, which is much less of a concern. And, and you can see the, the quality distribution here is, is largely investment grade, a fair amount in triple B, but most of that midstream would be triple B. Um, you know, and the majors are, are high quality and, you know, we'd expect to be in good shape. Uh, the, the oil pill services is probably the, the one of most concern. You know, they make a lot of their money through drilling activity. Um, which is going to pretty much cease here. But our portfolio there is higher quality. It's more skewed to the single A range, um, mostly in the top three service providers. So we, we probably will get some downgrades there, but would, would expect to see those stay investment grade. You know, offshore drilling, 
sort of a subcomponent of that. We did spike that out. It's a very small part of the portfolio, but that will that is below investment grade. That is that is if we're going to see impairments here, that is where we're going to see it. But it is a very small part of the portfolio. And then the EMP exploration and production, which is a little bigger part of the portfolio. There's a real mix there. We do have a couple of billion there of sort of national oil companies, CNUC in China, National Oil Company of Korea, and those will be well supported by the sovereigns, no concern. But we do have a fair amount of independent producers who are more in the triple B range, and that is where we would expect to see some downgrades to below investment grade. But, they, you know, they started investment grade. They're strong. We, we do not expect impairments there, but we, we do expect some downgrades. Thanks for that color. Sure. Thank you. The next question is from Humphrey Lee from Dowling and Partners. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Good morning, and thank you for taking my questions. Uh, in terms of uh, claims exposure to COVID-19, um, do you have any sense in terms of kind of the net mortality sensitivity to the number of deaths um, that you can share, uh, either based on the number of deaths in the U.S. or the number of deaths in Canada? Hi, Humphrey. It's Steve Finch. I'll, uh, I'll take that question. And uh, yes, we've done uh, fairly extensive stress testing on our portfolio. And uh, your question, with respect to um, businesses that have either mortality or longevity exposure, uh, so Manulife overall, we've got a diversified mix of business. And in a pandemic like this, we would expect uh, charges in some lines of business with offsets in other lines. So charges in, uh, in our life insurance business, but offsets in businesses with, um, with uh, longevity exposure, such as annuity and long-term care. So in those businesses where there's a direct exposure to mortality or longevity, uh, in a scenario where there were 100,000 U.S. deaths, we would expect a charge of approximately 30 million Canadian post-tax, with the caveat that we do insure large, uh, large policies, particularly in the U.S., so there could be lots of variability, but roughly 30 million post-tax uh, uh, for 100,000 U.S. deaths. We'll see other impacts as well from claims, uh, you, notable uh, the travel claims that, uh, that we booked in Q1, and we're also closely watching our group businesses in, in Canada for the effects uh, that, you know, the impact the economy could have on, uh, on claims there, but we're not observing uh, any material trends at this point. So for that $30 million, is it just for the U.S., or is that contemplating for Canada as well? That's total company. Okay, that's helpful. Uh, and then in terms of uh, investment portfolio, I appreciate all the colors that you provided in terms of the, the exposure and, and, and where you see the pressure points. But have you done any stress tests in terms of maybe comparing to the previous crisis, uh, kind of running through from a bottoms-up approach where you see uh, it could be a, a potential kind of capital impact from kind of impairments and defaults? It's, sure. Uh, Hi, let, let me let me yeah let me start with that and and Steve you can certainly add um, you know every crisis is a little bit different um, and this one is uh, is a bit different from the GFC I guess one of the differences I'd call out is that in the GFC we saw 
it was really focused in the financial sector and was really tough on the investment grade banks and, and other financial institutions. And so we, we actually saw defaults on investment companies that start out as investment grade. This time around, it, it's very different. And I think the central banks globally have really reacted so much quicker and so much more than they did in the GFC that they provided liquidity to those companies. And you know, it's liquidity that's really the big issue um, in the short run. And given what we've seen, I don't really expect much in the way of investment grade defaults, which is why we focus so much on, you know, the below investment grade part of our portfolio being only 2%. They're the smaller, weaker companies. They don't have access to a lot of the the uh, stimulus coming out of the central banks is where we might expect impairment. So it's a little difficult to compare to the GFC. And, you know, we do expect most of our experience this cycle to be hence more downgrades than defaults. Um, and downgrades, while they create uh, a hit to earnings as we increase reserves in the current quarter, they get released in subsequent quarters to the extent we don't have defaults. And it, just as we looked at that and look at sort of stress testing and what might happen, one thing to give you a bit of a guide is if we saw 25% of our whole portfolio on a pro rata basis be downgraded one notch, and by one notch I mean if, uh, you know, there's typically three notches in a, in a rating category. So for triple B, there would be triple B plus, triple B, triple B minus. And so if they move down one notch, um, we would expect about a, about a $250 million post-tax uh, reserve increase and, and hit to earnings. Um, and uh, the way we do it, um, it, things have to move a full category to have an increase in reserve. So you would see the triple B minus is being downgraded to below investment grade is what would create that charge. And about half of that overall charge we would see does come out of our triple B portfolio. So that's a little context for you. And Steve, I don't know if you want to Yeah, I'll just add in terms of our overall stress testing, we do routinely do uh, stress testing on the entire company on the balance sheet, and we have stressed uh, more severe scenarios than what we saw in the global financial crisis. And, you know, everything that we've been doing over the years, building up our hedging programs, the portfolio optimization initiative, we, uh, we enter this time in a position of strength where we wanted to make sure that the company can withstand, withstand uh, very severe shocks and still be in a, a strong position. And uh, so we, we're confident in the capital position of the company based on the stress testing that we've done. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Mario Medanka from TD Securities. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Good morning. Uh, it, perhaps um, one, one thing I was looking for in the disclosure that I couldn't find was the asset default assumptions. Uh, Steve, is that something you'd, you'd be comfortable disclosing today? The asset default assumptions and the reserves, that is. And I'm Mario, sure maybe uh, what I... Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to ask actually what the dollar amount of the reserve is in the, um, the asset default reserves. Sure. So what, what I can do is describe our process. So uh, as with other assumptions, we go through detailed regular reviews. Uh, we work closely with Scott's team. We look at the Moody's long-term uh, default averages. And 
our experience has been over over a long period of time has been uh, better than what we see in the Moody studies. We have not gone all the way to our experience. So we've uh, we've reflected some of our own experience and some of the industry experience. And as you can imagine, the default assumptions vary by uh, ratings category, by tenor, uh, et cetera. So it's quite a, a detailed set of assumptions. Overall, the the we've estimated that the uh, the amount of provision for credit in our reserves, it's approximately three and a half billion. Um, that was at the end of uh, of uh, 2019. So as of Q1, it's likely gone up a little bit because of uh, of the currency movements, and about uh, a third to 40 percent of that is uh, PFAT or margin. Okay, and then just a quick clarification, Scott, when you referred to $50 oil, were you talking WTI US dollar? Yes, yes, I was. Okay, and then, sorry, just real quickly, Steve, when the $108 million you referred to for Moody's, you're saying that's the estimated or the expected losses. You, you're not, you're, I think what you said there, Steve, is that that's not what's in the reserve, the $108 million. That's just for information purposes. That's correct, yes. Okay, thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Gabrielle Deschaines, National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Uh, good morning. A uh, couple questions, one on Alda, one on Manulife Bank. On, uh, well, I guess the uh, investment experience, that's like 24. And, uh, Scott, you said, uh, you, you know, there's no reason to believe your Alda return assumptions are unreasonable or, or, or something to that extent. Uh, and I understand that it's a... Uh, a long-term return assumption, but what I see in that that, that chart is, you know, uh, you know, credit's been a tailwind, uh, but that's you know going away temporarily. Uh, but four to five years where the Alda uh, uh, experience was negative. I know there's oil and gas uh, affecting a couple of years, but uh, you know, maybe walk me through some some of the other issues that uh, may have arisen and why they, sh you know, what I should interpret from that chart. Sure, Gabriel. Thanks for the question. So, yeah, let me let me give you a little perspective on this. We we really think, you know, our our ALDA through the cycle will perform about what we put in our reserves. So, when we talk about, you know, four hundred million of expected performance, that's really coming out of a combination of credit and fixed income reinvestment, and they do tend to uh, be negatively correlated to each other. So, when when times are good and we're getting credit releases. Uh, it's very difficult to add value in our fixed income portfolio. We we do historically manage to to do some every year, but as you'll have seen in this first quarter here, um, we actually had 370 million of fixed income gains in in one quarter, and that was due to the the volatility in the market, the wider spreads, the opportunities we saw, accompanied by a 50 million dollar credit loss. So you know that was that was offset, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't assume 370 million a quarter going forward, but we should expect elevated fixed income reinvestment gains during this period when we have credit credit losses. Um, so, so that's how I see those two sort of offsetting each other and, and providing a reliable stream of investment gains. On the Alda front, um, you know, it is the part of the portfolio that's sort of brutally marked to market and is going to have, you know, volatility in the best of times. And in these sort of times, you, you, 
you should expect losses and we should expect, you know, more gains in, in better times. Um, and, you know, frankly, uh, a part of the loss is due to uh, higher risk premiums being baked into those valuations, and that would portend, you know, higher returns going forward. So we feel very comfortable with our long-term assumption. We will revisit that this year as we do every year, but um, I have no reason to believe we would change those. Okay. And then uh, my question on Manulife Bank, uh, can you tell me, uh, you know, uh, the composition of the portfolio, how much of it's, uh, you know, Manulife One, uh, how many of your uh, mortgage customers have sought payment deferrals and and if you're seeing any um, uh, behavioral behavioral uh, changes uh, in, in terms of how the Manulife One product is, is used, because I think it's pretty flexible in terms of how you can access your, your money if you need it. Yeah, let me take that one. Um, it's Mike. Um, so just in terms of the, the sort of makeup of the bank portfolio, uh, it is primarily uh, residential mortgages. So about uh, 91% of the assets are, are, are made up of the residential mortgage book, and that is pretty, pretty well distributed across the country. Um, we have not seen any um, sort of material deterioration. We're obviously watching this very closely, as are all financial institutions. Um, we have, like a lot of the other banks, we did introduce a uh, deferral program we are at about, um, it changes every day, but we're about 7,000 of our customers have uh, deferred most of those at a, on a three-month basis. Um, so, um, again, we're, we're watching this very closely. We think the bank's in very good shape. Um, and just lastly, I'll just say we, you know, we stress test this regularly. And um, even under extreme stresses, it's something that the company can handle um, and manage fairly effectively. I don't know if Raheem many, wants to add anything to that. How many customers do you have? That's seven thousand. Good number, but percentage wise. Yeah, it's about just it's about a hundred and hundred thousand and change. Thanks. Nothing else for me. Thank you. The next question is from David Mortemadden. From Evercore ISI, please go ahead. Your line is open. Hi, good morning. Uh, just had a question. I mean, it was good to see the 155% LICAT ratio, um, but I wanted to drill in a little bit on uh, Phil's statements that you still you expect lower remittances this year. Uh, the the 155 LICAT wouldn't suggest that you would need to, you know, have lower remittances this year than the 2.8 billion last year. So wondering, wondering what the disconnect is there. Thanks, David, for the question. This is Phil. Um, so as we've said before, uh, in environments where we see declining interest rates, we do expect to see lower remittances particularly from our subsidiaries in Asia. And we've noted uh, on previous calls that Hong Kong in particular is a regime that has uh, sensitivity to interest rates in terms of uh, its uh, surplus capital levels and therefore ability to remit. 
as we've uh, reiterated a number of times, remittances will bounce around from year to year, but we do remain confident in our remittance capacity for the medium term. And combined with the strong LICAT position that you highlighted, 155% increase from 140% at the end of the year, and the strong liquidity position of the company, that does enable us to uh, continue to service debt and dividends through times of market stress. Final point that I'll add is that we are a diversified company and we're not um, exclusively dependent upon any of our segments or legal entities for generation of remittances. Great, and, and maybe just on the, the Hong Kong point that you just brought up, Phil, what, what was the, the HKIA uh, capital ratio there um, and, and what's your target and do you, I mean, is that something where you think you need to inject capital with rates at these levels? So, David, we don't uh, we don't set out the uh, individual uh, levels of uh, capital in each of our jurisdictions. There is some information on statutory targets included in the embedded value report, but the the strong LICAP position and the the low leverage means that we do have the ability to deploy resources wherever they are needed. In the group, and I, I think, in the interest of transparency, I will tell you that uh, this year, as a result of the sensitivity to market interest rates uh, in our overseas, some of our overseas subsidiaries, we have downstreamed assets, and that, uh, combined with some other measures that we have taken to mitigate the impact of those market sensitivities. Uh, means that we don't expect to uh, inject further material um, uh, capital into into those overseas operations. And uh, just to be totally transparent, and one of the reasons why in my remarks we do refer to an expectation of lower remittances, by the end of April, the aggregate amount that we have downstreamed is in the order of two and a half billion Canadian dollars. Uh, is that... that you downstream two and a half billion. Is that to Hong Kong specifically, or that's across all of the all of the the subsidiaries, the U.S. as well? That's a number that uh, is an aggregate number for all of our subsidiaries. But we, the, the U.S. is a very stable capital regime, stable liability valuations, and we've not uh, not needed to downstream any money into the U.S. Okay, got it. And then if I could just follow up, I guess, kind of relatedly on that point, uh, just on, on slide 20, where you talk about uh, consolidated liquidity. Um, I, I guess I'm, I'm more interested in terms of cash that you have at the parent at the holdco. Um, wondering if we could get an update on where that stood um, at the end of the first quarter. Um, and also if you can size um, the cash needs at the holdco um, for the rest of the year outside of the, the common dividend? Yeah, thanks, David. This is uh, Phil again. So as, um, as you may or may not be aware, our corporate structure is uh, one whereby our hold co, the listed company MFC, has one subsidiary MLI, so that's a vertical structure. And our practice is not to hold um, uh, assets at the, uh, in the holding company, the listing company. And that's, uh, that's really possible because both MFC and the wholly owned subsidiary MLI are both 
uh, entities here in Canada that are regulated by the same regulator, OSFI, and there are no special restrictions or approvals that, that would uh, constrain us from moving funds between those entities. Um, the, the, your reference to the slide where we do point out that uh, approximately one quarter of our invested assets are held in either cash or liquid government bonds, that is a consolidated number. But I, I can also say that it's, it's uh, a number that's true for Canada as well. So in terms of the capital and liquidity position, I, 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 something that I, I really don't believe is a constraint. Great, thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Manny Grauman from Cormark Securities. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Hi, good morning. I'm just wondering about uh, exposure in the investment book to specifically aviation, hotels, restaurants, and leisure. As a group, what would the exposure be in the investment book? Sure, Mandy, it's Scott. I'll, I'll take that question. So, as you mentioned, you know, consumer cyclicals is, is a, a low sector for us at 3%. And within that, um, hotels, to answer your, your specific questions, hotels would be a very small number um, within, the, within the credit book of less than $150 million to premier names. Within the commercial mortgage book, we have only $300 million. We typically don't lend to hotels. And you know, two of those would be premier hotels in Boston with, with quite low loan-to-value. So, yeah, hotels are going to come under significant pressure, but we don't uh, believe that's going to be a concern to our portfolio. Um, uh, restaurants, we have very little exposure to restaurants, um, and what little we have is to uh, McDonald's and Starbucks, sort of strong, strong companies that we do not have much concern on. On retail, we tend to stick to sort of things that are now considered essential service that are high quality, the sort of Costco's, Walmart's, Home Depot's of the world. Um, and then in leisure, we, you know, we do, we have a, a $1.4 billion exposure to sports teams. And there, as, as is the case, you're getting kind of the theme throughout our portfolio. We tend to stick with the strongest companies. So we do stick with the strongest commercially oriented teams. These would be stadium financings. And all of these are underwritten, assuming there will be a lost season. We had assumed a strike season, uh, not what's going on now. So we, again, don't see any issues, probably not even any downgrades there, unless this really does extend out into probably the next calendar year. So we feel very good about that part of the portfolio. And just in terms of the overall real estate exposure, can you just talk about rental forbearance experience? Um, in the quarter, and then what you saw in April, and, and I guess even even May. Now that I guess most rents are in. Yeah, it's um, so. There's two parts of the real estate portfolio. There's the the mortgage portfolio, and then the real estate owned portfolio. And in 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 both cases, it's retail where we're seeing the most pressure. Um, and in the commercial mortgage portfolio, in April we. We, get, we received payments as scheduled on 98.5% of the books, so 1.5% we did not. That was focused in retail. And in, in those cases, in almost all cases, we just gave forbearance on principal, not on interest, although there were a couple of cases where we, we, we did um, defer, defer those as well. And again, these are deferred, so they will, 
defer typically for three months to, to be paid. And the May, it's, it's still early, um, but it, the numbers are trending in a very similar direction. On, on the real estate-owned side, uh, again, our exposure to retail is very small. It's 3% three, 3% of the portfolio. Um, when you look at specifically retail, if you include all the retail, some office buildings have a little bit of retail in their podium. It gets up to more like 4.5%, um, and that's where we're seeing most of the issues, although we are seeing um, some rents from co-working spaces um, asking for deferrals and so forth. So it's a little higher number. It's about 10% of the lease payments um, were not made in April, and we gave uh, deferrals on, on those. And, you know, thus far in May, again, it's early, but trends are looking similar. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Darko Mihalich from RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Hi, thank you. My question is for Steve. Uh, we note that there's a um, neutral impact um, this quarter from long-term care. I was wondering what's your early read here um, on the long-term care side, and I'm asking it from two different angles. One is just what you think could happen here. I'm, what I'm potentially concerned about is you know, premium rate increases might be difficult going forward. Um, maybe lapses will change certainly interest rates. So, so the, from, from your reserving perspective, what's your early read and what you're seeing? And then secondarily, um, you know, we have seen some instances of, of uh, statutory reserves being, um, you know, reopened and, and, uh, and challenged. I'm wondering uh, if you can give us any update on that side as well. Thanks, Darko. It's Steve here. I'll take those in, in order. So, uh, as you can imagine, we're tracking very closely a lot of uh, emerging data on all of our businesses, but LTC is, is one that we're particularly focused on. We did not see a lot of uh, observable changes or trends in, uh, in the first quarter. In April, we are beginning to see a couple of trends. Uh, you know, it has been widely reported um, high fatality rates in nursing homes uh, and assisted living facilities. Um, so we have seen in April some trending up in, uh, in reported deaths. There can be a lag in, in long-term care uh, with getting all the data in. And we have seen some early indications of, uh, of lower uh, incidents or new claims occurring. Uh, we will be tracking very closely any lapse experience um, uh, and all sorts of trends that we may uh, see on this business. It is a very long-term business, so, you know, I think we may see some noise in the, in the short term, and we will probably see some offsets to elevated claims in our life businesses. But I think it's too early to estimate, you know, long-term trends. But as you can imagine, we'll be paying uh, very, very close attention to this and reporting on, uh, on what we're seeing as we're going forward. On your second question with respect to statutory reserves and regulators uh, challenging companies, there was uh, a peer I think that you're referring to there. Um, what I, can t I can't comment on, on other companies, but I can talk to you about the regulatory process and, and uh, the conversations that we've been having. Uh, 
the regulators have increased significantly the amount of information that they're looking for on long-term care. There's a very detailed filing that we do. It's bilateral uh, between the companies and the states called AG51 filing where we provide very comprehensive information on our assumptions, on our experience. And we've had follow-up, very in-depth dialogue with uh, a group of regulators that's been overseeing this. And they had lots of questions. We engaged uh, very constructively with them. And they've raised no concerns with the adequacy of our, our reserves. Uh, you know, we, as you know, we went through a very comprehensive review of assumptions uh, in the third quarter of last year. We have a professional third-party peer reviewer that reports to our audit committee. And those assumptions feed into our best estimate assumptions on our U.S. NAIC adequacy testing on LTC. So there's been a very robust process to go into those assumptions. And as part of asset adequacy testing in the U.S., even though we've got adequate margin in long-term care, we also look broadly at the total margin in the company when assessing adequacy of reserves. So based on all the facts uh, that I've just laid out, uh, I don't see a risk to us of having uh, state regulators uh, challenging our, our LTC reserves. I've seen no evidence of that. Thank you for that, Steve. That, uh, that's a good answer. And just a very quick follow-up uh, for Naveed, I think. Um, you know, you managed to get $5 billion of of capital, um, what's the outlook now? Um, and you know, is it possible that uh, we should think about your work and your activities being very muffled in the current environment? Yeah, hi Darko. Um, I'd say a short term, it probably has delayed uh, some transactions that we were working on. Um, I think the increased volatility, especially on asset prices, uh, make it difficult to transact in this environment. Um, in some cases, getting bandwidth from regulators may be challenging in this environment. Uh, but actually, in the medium to longer term, I actually think it could create more opportunities. Um, I've talked to some third parties, uh, including private e equity-backed companies, and they, they've indicated that they have a considerable amount of dry powder available. Uh, and attractive yield opportunities. Uh, so I think those are things we'll look at at the appropriate time. Um, but I think I, I've, I've said before that we've been focused on pivoting to organic enforced management. Uh, so things like repricings, adjusting crediting rates. Um, and actually, we think that uh, as we get out of this crisis, there'll be an opportunity to ramp up our buyout programs, which can be a win-win for customers and the company as customers are looking for liquidity. Um, so I think it's very much in flux, but I feel that there's still quite a bit of opportunity here. Okay. Thanks Hi, Darko. It's Marianne. I was just going to answer that question on lapses. You had a question um, for Steve uh, on the, uh, sorry, not lapses, on the rate increases for LTC. So right. we've actually gotten a couple approved since the uh, crisis has started, and only two states have actually said that we're not to file uh, rate increases during this time. So we are continuing to go, and we still have momentum in terms of filing the rate increases. Thank you, Marianne. That's, uh, that's helpful. And while I have you, are you considering doing what some other of your peers are doing in the U.S., which is dropping 30-year term product um, and really significant changes, in fact, to the whole product lineup given the, given the interest rate environment? Well, as you probably know, our, uh, our product lineup is, 
we've got about 20 products in the product portfolio and they are very much adjustable already. So I would say that we have done a lot of those changes over the years um, versus where our peer companies are. So I think we're in a good spot where we are right now. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Doug Young from Desjardins Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Uh, good morning. I guess this question is probably for Steve. Uh, as per your disclosure, lower interest rates now positively impacts earnings by $300 million. And, and I would guess there's some nuances. And to the extent that we can have a simple discussion as to what those nuances are, that would be fantastic. Um, just hoping to get some color on that. Sure, Doug. Thanks. Yes, uh, the, the first point to make is that we've not changed our hedging program. So they're as uh, they have been designed. And the change in that sensitivity this quarter, it's primarily due to a divergence between the economics, uh, the underlying economics, which we hedge to, and our accounting basis as a result of the market movements, specifically its corporate spreads. So the major spread widening that we saw means that our liability sensitivity changed by less than the asset sensitivity. Remember, we don't hedge corporate spreads. We view them as, uh, you know, a, uh, often a nice offset to perhaps stressed equity markets, which is what we're seeing in, uh, in the first quarter. And the key thing is that if corporate spreads were to revert back to, to or towards year-end levels, we would expect that our sensitivities would revert, revert back as well. So I would view it as more of a, a temporary situation. So we should use the Q4 sensitivities really as a base case when we're thinking about interest rate impacts. Is that a fair thought process? Yeah, and, and the other, yeah, a couple of other comments. I mean, when you look at these sensitivities relative to the size of the balance sheet uh, and our net income, it's really quite modest. We've, we've, really immunized for parallel moves on current period impacts. And another place I'd point you to is in the embedded value disclosure, where we disclose that a 50 basis point decline in, um, in, uh, in yields results in, over time, approximately a $350 million hit to embedded value. I think it, it really demonstrates the, the power of the hedging programs that we've put in place. Okay, and just a second follow-up on your claims exposure to COVID-19. You, you said it was a 100,000 deaths. Is that 100,000 deaths across your own book? Is that the way to think of it um, and the way that you stressed it? No, uh, good point. For clarity, uh, a lot of people have been benchmarking on stress scenarios saying how many deaths would that mean in the United States population? So. That's 100,000 U.S. population deaths, and uh, currently uh, the, the figure, the reported figure, it's on the order of 70,000. Uh, the other thing that we're watching as well is that uh, there may be under-reporting of, there may be COVID deaths that are not uh, specifically identified as COVID, so I'm really talking about all excess mortality related to the U.S. population. And so that thirty million just for your U.S. book, but you said that was actually across your entire book. Is that? That's across our entire book, and I think it, it there's offsets in there, right? I, uh, you know, I commented that because of the diversified nature, we've got some businesses that have exposure to uh, to uh, claims experience uh, to uh, mortality rates, and other businesses with exposure to longevity. Uh, maybe the uh, the other thing that I'd add is what we're seeing 
is uh, the the pandemic is disproportionately hitting the lower income part of the the population, and the insured population tends to be of a higher uh, economic situation. So that's uh, that's also factoring into the results. We've also reflected the expected mortality rates by age, as uh, older ages are uh, are also more impacted. Okay, that, that's great. Thank you very much. Thank you. The next question is from Sumit Malhotra from Scotia Capital. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Thanks. Good morning. I'll try to keep this brief. Uh, firstly, for Scott, just uh, in the uh, earnings on surplus, uh, this this is not the first time we've seen some reference to uh, seed capital marks for for Manulife. Obviously, it's a it's a larger number this quarter. Just hoping you can uh, you can educate me here on uh, what the, the the total size of of this investment is for the for the company that runs through this line, and uh, specifically. Uh, what uh, what are you using to to mark these uh, investments on a on a quarterly basis? So Sumit, this is Phil. I think it makes sense for me sure. to start on that and have Scott supplement with anything he'd like to supplement. Uh, the the value of the uh, seed capital investments in our surplus segment it's approximately one and a half billion dollars, and that does include a mix of equity funds and balanced and bond funds. In Q1 2020, the after-tax impact of marking those to market was $176 million. But that, uh, that, that loss compares to actually a mark-to-market gain in the first quarter of uh, 2019 of $98 million. So the year-on-year swing that we've seen here in terms of distortion to core earnings is in the order of $270 million. Now, that impact is greater than you may expect based on our disclosed equity sensitivities because of the what's happened this quarter is that the mark-to-market on equities has been combined with widening corporate spreads that has reduced the value of the uh, the bond, the bond funds, and also the bonds within uh, balanced funds, and so that's what's causing the slightly larger impact than you might expect. The portfolio mix, if you look at the whole portfolio, it's roughly 60% equities, 40% bonds. Is, is there anything, Scott, you'd like to add to that? Yeah, the only thing I'd add, Phil, is that these these are these are all public securities, so they are you know absolutely marked to market at current levels. All right. So I think by giving us a notional fill, there's at least something we can we can think about on how that trends. Uh, last one is is for Anil. Uh, I'm I'm sure uh, I'm sure you'll be happy for the business that uh, on a on a trend line basis, uh, it's it's now been a full year since uh, the the repositioning of the of the Kohli product in Japan. I mean, your your insurance sales in in that country have sequentially moved higher in in, in every quarter since Q2. Your earnings have been in a in a reasonable range. Um, if if I try to, to separate uh, the the outlook here between what's happening with the with the impact of the pandemic versus the positioning of the product, as far as you're concerned, uh, has the take up of uh, your your redesigned Coley product now uh, reflected your expectations, and, and it has more to do with what happens with the with the broader economy in that country as opposed to where where Manulife is positioned. Thanks, Amit. Uh, thanks for the question. So, 
from a from a quality perspective, you're absolutely right. So, you know, from an enactment perspective, we saw that in quarter three. Uh, and then sequentially, we've kind of seen our sales improve. In fact, in quarter one of this year, as you rightly pointed out, uh, we witnessed $164 million, which was a jump of about uh, 28% quarter on quarter, and our earnings jumped as well uh, by 17 uh, by 17%. So I think we are pleased with the with the momentum. The challenge, Sumit, is that Japan continues to be under the cloud of COVID and is right now faced up with uh, a lot of restrictions around uh, around lockdown. So the mobility of both the customers uh, as well as our agents is impacted, and it doesn't help that the uh, economic uncertainty would obviously kind of add to the customer sentiment, uh, as you can as you can imagine. What we are focused on, and just to kind of provide you a little bit of color on that, uh, number one, if you look at our product mix right now, uh, only a third of our sales uh, contribute to the overall sales that we generate. Uh, only a third of Kohli sales now contribute to the overall sales that we generate in, in, in Japan. So we've kind of, in many ways, uh, built a much more resilient product mix and have moved away from our dependence uh, on Kohli, which as you can reckon, if you were to kind of trace it back to quarter one of last year, was, was, was quite high. The second piece is distribution is going to be pivotal, as, as it always is. And towards that, we have been investing uh, in building up our MFA channel on the success that we've kind of seen in Singapore. We are up to 170 advisors uh, and, include, and, and also uh, inviting more MGAs uh, to onboard with us. In addition to that, we've also been training our existing MGAs. Uh, to offer uh, the non-Koli products, which is again, as you can see, uh, starting to show some 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 results. And last but not the least, as I mentioned the last time around as well, we are looking at expense efficiency measures uh, in in Japan, uh, given the given the uh, new volume trajectory that we are experiencing that, uh, there. Uh, there. So, from a sequential perspective, we are pretty pleased with what we are seeing. Unfortunately, on account of COVID, there is a huge amount of uncertainty and it kind of becomes hard to predict as to what the new normal would look like. If I could just jump in, I think Anil's summary was, was spot on. And just to punctuate, one of the key points that he made was around diversity. One of the things that we've been really focused on over the last four to five years has been strengthening the diversity of our franchise. That's true for us globally, but it's absolutely true for us in Asia. So reducing the reliance on any one market or one product line is something that we've been gradually focused on and have seen improvements and success. Um, and again, yeah, in Japan, we're seeing the reduced reliance on Kohli and specific acquisition channels as something that we're going to continue to focus our efforts on in, uh, in, in the course of this year and beyond. So that really is a big element of our Asia strategy is just that diversity of geography, diversity of channel and distribution, as well as diversity of product as, as well. I appreciate your thoughts. Thanks for your time. Thank you. The next question is from Paul Holden from CIBC World Markets. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Thank you. Good morning. I want to ask you a question, again, related to the oil and gas portfolio within uh, within Holda. Um, 
and I guess what I want to better understand is kind of the contribution it had been making to core earnings, and given the impairment charge and where WTI is now, uh, what the impact is um, going uh, going forward to or potential impact to uh, to core earnings. Sure, sure, Paul. It's it's Scott. I'll I'll take that one. Um, so for core earnings, you may recall that we will put up to $100 million of investment gains a quarter into core earnings, up to $400 million for the full year. And that's a combination of the, all the performance, the fixed income, and the credit. And as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's typically the fixed income and the credit that contributes the most to that. All the really contributes some volatility, but has been pretty much uh, on our assumptions over the longer term. So and within ALDA, oil and gas is a very small component. It's 6% of our ALDA portfolio. So it, it plays a very small role. I would say, unfortunately, in the last five years, it's played an outsized role in the wrong direction. Um, but, you know, the, na the nature of investing is that um, things do cycle around. And actually, in the first decade of the 2000s, oil and gas was the strongest contributor to our all the returns, and in the last decade, they've been the lowest contributors. So it's been a bit of a drag on our overall investment experience. Um, but despite that, we've, um, you know, on average, been able to produce 400 million of investment gains in, in recent years. Okay. So, so, so what you're saying here is, despite the impairment charge, or, or, or maybe not impairment, but markdown in Q1 that's not necessarily really going to be a drag on forward uh, core earnings. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? I think, I think for this year, it's going to be very difficult to get investment gains into core earnings. You know, we're starting at a minus 600 million. We'd have to recoup all that before we could put it into core. And, and frankly, I do expect, you know, future credit losses. They will likely be offset by fixed income gains. Um, but, we'll also probably see some additional all the losses. So I think it's unlikely you're going to see a contribution to core from investment gains this year, but we'll turn the page to next year and I would expect, um, I would expect to be back on track. Okay. Understand. Uh, second question is related to new business gains in, uh, in Asia. So if I just take a simple look of Q over Q, then total sales from Asia were actually up but business gains were down. Now, I'm going to assume that's due to lower interest rates, but is that correct? And were, were maybe there some other factors at play as well? Yeah, thanks for the question. This is this is Anil. Uh, let me let me take this and I'll then kind of you know turn it to Phil if he has uh, uh, any supplement comments. Uh, but I think if you look at the quarter-on-quarter -quarter new business gains, there are three essential factors that impact it. So one, uh, from a proportionality perspective, we saw higher uh, sales in Japan, and uh, just the margin mix uh, had an impact uh, from a quarter-on-quarter -quarter perspective. Secondly, uh, we saw some very strong uh, door opening uh, in China. Uh, which was on the back of savings and annuity product. Unfortunately, uh, the COVID hit us uh, in the third week of Jan. So February and March, we were not able to uh, cross-sell as well as uh, get the right product mix. So that uh, had a knock-on impact as well. Uh, and the third one was uh, the product mix uh, in, in Hong Kong. And on account of the outbreak, there was a bit of a skew 
uh, from a customer segment to a short pay uh, products, which again impacted uh, the product mix. I should, uh, I should, however, underscore the fact that the new business value margin in Hong Kong continues to be north of 60%, which we believe uh, is still uh, very, very healthy. But the three things that really contributed were the ones uh, that I just articulated. Okay, and it sounds like- Thanks, Daniel. And maybe I'd just supplement with a couple of points. One is that new business gains are one of the items that we've commented a few times, do tend to bounce around from quarter to quarter and year to year. There is naturally a correlation with uh, the volume of new business that we write as well as the mix. And as, as Roy had commented on earlier, we are in a challenging environment. And I, I think it, it is, as we look forward, it's hard to predict exactly what volumes will be. And that's, that will be one of the drivers of new business gains um, for the remainder of the year. Got it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Scott Chan from Canaccord Genuity. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Uh, good morning. It, Scott, maybe just a follow-up on, uh, on Paul's question on, on core investment gains. Uh, the 608 that, that has to catch up, does that reset at the end of the year, or, or does, that have to, um, does, that, does that have to make up uh, the difference in order for you to, to book core investment gains starting, say, in Q1 2021? Scott, this yeah. is Phil. It resets on the 1st of January. It resets. Okay. And maybe just the last question for, for Roy. You talked about the capital priorities uh, organically and talked about the bank insurance agreement, uh, committed to the dividend. Obviously, buybacks are halted. Uh, but M&A, is M&A feasible in this environment? Are you, are you looking at stuff or, or are you more concerned about, uh, you know, the first priority? Yeah, Scott, uh, thanks for the question. You know, again, I, I, I'd start by saying that, you know, we feel, uh, you know, very confident about our capital position. And again, we entered into this price from a position of strength. So that's really put us in good order. And as mentioned earlier, our focus from a capital prioritization perspective really hasn't changed. We've always talked about the fact that organically growing our business is where we see the greatest opportunity. Um, and that, again, will continue to be the, the case for us as we look forward. And then obviously, uh, we've, we're obviously very committed to the dividends and uh, tactical share buybacks when we see the price of our stock uh, not reflected uh, accurately or, or correctly. Um, on the M&A front, we're in a fortunate position in that we don't feel we need M&A to deliver on our through the cycle or medium term targets. Um, but opportunistically, if there are opportunities um, that align to our strategy, and that allow us to accelerate our agenda for growth, then we would certainly uh, look at them. So we, again, feel that the strength of our capital position puts us in good stead to navigate this situation. And at the same time, opportunistically, if there are uh, great value opportunities on the M&A front, we would definitely consider them. Thank you. Thank you. There are no further questions registered at this time. We'll return the meeting back to Ms. O'Neill. Thank you, Operator. We'll be available after the call if there's any follow-up questions. Have a nice morning, everybody.
Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.